Grasp the Bible is a podcast of Spring Baptist Church that walks through selected books of the Bible, verse by verse, as well as spends time exploring biblical ideas and topics to help you understand and apply God's Word in your daily life. Pastor Dale Stein of our Klein campus will be leading each week's study. This is our 93rd episode. Thank you for joining us today. Today we are continuing our study in the book of Mark. Pastor Dale, it is good to have you with us today. Thank you, Ray, to be back. Well, what are we going to talk about today? Two different storylines today. One is we're going to see Peter and his denial of Jesus at his trial before the Jewish religious leaders. And then we're also going to see um, the trial itself before the religious leaders as well. Well, very good. Is there anything we need to be on the lookout for as far as topics or themes that you think maybe you just need to keep in our mind as we start the study? Yeah, so we talked about this last time, and it's going to continue throughout this narrative, is this whole notion of God being in control of everything. And so we can look at this saying, oh my gosh, this is horrible. How dare these people do these things? But we need to keep in mind that Jesus is saying over and over again, these things were predicted. Scripture must be fulfilled. This was all planned all along. Well, let's jump right into today's study. Well, we continue our study in the book of Mark. We're going to be picking up where we left off last time in chapter 14, uh, and we will finish the book of Mark covering, or finish chapter 14, covering verses 53 through 72 today. And so, to set the scene for you, Jesus is led from Gethsemane to the high priest's residence. And this is going to be the first of two trial scenes in Mark There's going to be a Jewish one that we're going to look at today before the Sanhedrin, and then a Roman one before Pontius Pilate, which we will get into the next time. And so the great Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court of ancient Israel, and it was made up of 70 men and the high priest. And so at Jesus' trial before these men, a lot of accusations are going to be made, but they all fail. And we're going to see them question him whether or not he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And what's going to happen is that it's going to end with a charge of blasphemy and condemnation by the Sanhedrin. And while this seems like a disaster for Jesus, we see God's plan is continuing to move forward with his son being a sacrifice and a ransom for sinners. So, Let's begin by looking at Jesus is denied by his follower, part one, in verses 53 through 54. Okay, first verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest's home where the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law had gathered. And so this crowd, likely made up of Jewish and Roman authorities, they lead Jesus to the residence of the high priest. Now, Mark never names who this high priest is, but we see in other gospel accounts that it is a man named Caiaphas, and he held that office from uh, year 18 to year 36. And he was a son-in-law of Annas, the former high priest who was deposed by the Romans in AD 15. And so, gathered at this residence were the people from the Sanhedrin, right? So we had these ruling priests, these elders, and these experts in the law. Now, Mark says that they were all there, all of them were present. Probably not every single one of these 70 people, but surely enough of them to form a quorum of this particular group. So in verse 54, 
Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and went right into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. So although all the disciples abandoned Jesus at Gethsemane, Peter, true to his professed loyalty, he kind of circles back and follows the crowd at a distance. And so we see Peter again being, being brave and yet and, and brash and yet wavering at the same time. So he is a little ways away. And so he gets as far as the courtyard of the high priest. So as we're going to look later in the story, uh, it seems based on the description that the courtyard is in the center and these buildings were built uh, around that. And so it seems that Peter is there with some of these guards warming himself by the fire while the scene continues. So let's look now at Jesus being denounced by his foes in uh, verses 55 through 65, looking first of all in verses 55 through 66 at the frantic efforts to indict him. Beginning in verse 55, Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they could not find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they contradicted each other. So, this is hardly a legitimate trial, since the goal here is simply to find enough evidence to put him to death. If you remember back, the Pharisees and the Herodians, all these people, they had plotted to kill him, even back since chapter 3, all the way back that early. But Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem seems to really have amped up their efforts. And you know what's interesting here is even though it's the middle of the night, there's false witnesses on hand showing they planned this all along. Right? Do you ever see that like on the news media? Oh, look, this, this politician got busted. Oh, look, we all happen to be here. What a coincidence, right? So, same thing. This, this is all rigged from the very beginning, all right? They had this all planned out, all right? And so, they, the, what seems to be happening is that they could be trying to abide by the command and the Ten Commandments that not to bear false witness, and you have two or more witnesses who are testifying to the same thing. Now, maybe... Mark doesn't say that explicitly, but that could very well be it. Um, But it could also be that Mark's trying to show with all these people here, they can't even get their story straight, right? They can't even agree among themselves. So moving on to verses 57 through 59, at the futile efforts to indict him. Verse 57, finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another made without human hands. But even then, they couldn't get their story straight. So, Mark reports only one specific charge against Jesus, and that is threatening to destroy the temple and rebuild it. And these same charges will be leveled against him too while he's on the cross. And although Jesus implicitly threatened the temple by clearing its merchants, and he predicted its destruction in the Olivet Discourse, nowhere in the Gospels does it say, or does Jesus even say, that he will destroy the temple. So the closest account we get to this is found in John's Gospel, John 2.19, where Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And so, uh, but we also read on in John, he says, you know, he, he'd spoken about this because he's speaking about his body, not the temple itself. And so from Mark's perspective, the witnesses, they bear false testimony because Jesus didn't personally threaten the temple. Instead, he predicted its destruction. 
But there is more to this prediction of the temple's demise. And so just hang with me here for just a moment because the word temple here means the sanctuary itself, including the most holy place, rather than the larger temple compound. And Mark says, you know, this, this temple made with human hands. And so what he's saying here is that there is this temple that people made, human made, humans made it. But then there is a temple made without hands, meaning that, that God built that himself. We see the same thing in the book of Acts when Stephen was being stoned, when he talked about the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And we see this in the book of Hebrews as well, when the writer there tells us that um, there is this heavenly, heavenly tabernacle in which Jesus made his once for all sacrifice for sins, not made with human hands. And so it seems that in Jesus' words here, and also found what we see in the clarification in John 2.19, that Jesus was saying that there is this new temple, which is his body. And um, we, the church, are part of this body with him. And so it seems that Jesus is pointing to the fact that there will be this new church that's being established based on who Jesus is. And so moving forward in verses 60 to 62, let's look at the affirmation. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What have you to say for yourself? So the high priest, he recognizes that this testimony against Jesus is going nowhere. And so he intervenes, seeking to have Jesus incriminate himself. And so we're getting to the climax of the hearing. Verse 61, But Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? So at first... Jesus refuses to answer. And the high priest then follows with a question of identity. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And so, really from Mark's perspective, this question is somewhat surprising because Jesus has been very reserved throughout the book of Mark with reference to his messianic identity. Because we've seen before that he would silence the demons who recognized him. And also the same thing too at the, at, at, at the disciples. After Peter's confession, he had them tell, not tell anyone. And so all this time he had been trying to keep it very secret. And so now we see this question, are you this one? So we would expect, on one hand, for Jesus to still play it low and not say anything. And also... Um, we see in the book of Mark his divine sonship, right? So are you the Messiah? We've seen Jesus keep that low. Now this question of sonship comes up. And the demons, back in chapter 3, they recognize Jesus as the Son of God, right? We see back at Jesus' baptism, the Father recognized Jesus as his Son. And then Jesus himself recognized this back in chapter 13, verse 32. And so we see all throughout these messianic implications uh, of who Jesus is, and we see his approach to Jerusalem on the donkey also fulfilled this as well. And so there was speculation among the general population that Jesus was this Messiah. Now, the high priest isn't asking whether or not he is divine, but whether or not he is claiming to be the Messiah with the special father-son relationship that was predicted in Scripture. And let's look at Jesus' response in verse 62. Jesus said, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus' response is straightforward. I am. And so we have his clearest self-identification so far in the gospel. And the secret now is over. And the cross is completely unavoidable at this time. And so his answer is simple and direct. But then his follow-up is one that is defiant. And it takes us back to Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel 7, 13, which we'll get to in just a moment here. Because we've already talked about Psalm Psalm uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so we see here that the Messiah must be more than a king, must be more than David, because David calls him Lord. And the right hand is the greatest position of power and prestige beside the king, and it's used to indicate this supreme authority following Jesus' ascension. And so this Son of Man coming on the clouds comes from Daniel 7, 13 uh, and 14, where one like a Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven before the Ancient of Days and is given glory, dominion, and an everlasting kingdom. And so we know that Jesus' immediate vindication will come when he enters into God's kingdom and sits at his right hand, but the ultimate vindication will come when he returns to judge both the living and the dead. And at that time, those who are standing in judgment over Jesus will be judged themselves. And so... In what way will they see Jesus vindicated? Because he's saying, you know what, you know, you're going to see me come here and you're going to see me vindicated. Revelation 1.7 says this, Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. And so Jesus has just dropped the hammer on them. There is no turning back and his fate is now sealed. So let's look at the agreement in verses 63 and 64. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Why do we need to hear another witness? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. He deserves to die. So they're outraged by what he says. And they're saying here that he deserves to die. His own words have condemned him. And so when they tore their clothes, it was, it was a sign that, that they were very dismayed, that they heard something that was very upsetting, something blasphemous. We see in what's called the Mishnah, or the, the writings of oral Jewish law, and it says this, that in the case of blasphemy, judges stand up on their feet and rend their garments. And so for them, what they've just heard is blasphemous. And because of that, Jesus deserves to die. So... Um, these religious leaders, they see here that him saying that he is a son of man is blasphemy in their eyes. And so they say then that he is worthy of death. And so the penalty for blasphemy is found in the book of Leviticus chapter 24, and that is death. But the Sanhedrin could not carry it out at that time because of Roman occupation. And so right now they're simply gathering enough evidence to bring a charge of sedition to the Roman governor, Pilate. So now let's look at the assault in verse 65. Then some of them began to spit on him, and they blindfolded him and beat him with their fist. Prophesy to us, they jeered, and the guards slapped him as they took him away. So the decision of the council results in Jesus' abuse. And spitting upon someone, it was a derisive act meant to bring shame and to demean someone. 
Isaiah's suffering servant is said to have been insulted and have been spit upon. We see that in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. And so, um, we see this in Jesus' prediction of the Passion, saying that he was going to be handed over to religious leaders, condemned, mocked, spit upon, and beaten. So, once again, we see Jesus is in complete control. He said this was going to happen, and now it is playing out before their eyes. And what's interesting here is that they, tell, they, they blindfold him, and they mock him, and they tell him to prophesy. And they had no idea. He had already prophesied this very thing was going to happen. So really, the joke's on them, right? They, he knew this was going to happen. And so um, we see that they, they, that they take him into custody here, and they are continuing the abuse. And so um, what do we learn just from looking back at, at these few verses? Well, we see... The, these two themes play out again of Jewish opposition to Jesus and Jesus' self-understanding of the Messiah. And so his self-disclosure reaches a climax here. From the, from the beginning of the gospel, we've known as the reader that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But this truth has been revealed only gradually to certain characters throughout the drama. And so at Jesus' baptism and the transfiguration, the Father acknowledges that He is the Son of God. Demons recognize this truth throughout Jesus' Galilean ministry, but Jesus Jesus repeatedly silences the demons, and He tells the disciples and those He healed not to disclose His identity. And then finally, finally, when we get to the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 29, do we have a human being, Peter, expressly claim that Jesus is the Messiah. But even then, Jesus tells his followers to be silent, and he radically redefines them what it means to be a suffering servant. And so, at Jesus' final entrance, though, into Jerusalem, we see it all begin to unfold. He rode on a colt. He cleared the temple. Uh, He told a parable about these tenant farmers and they all have these messianic implications. And so now at his trial, Jesus takes the decisive and final step to acknowledge that indeed he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so why would Jesus, who's been so reserved throughout his ministry, why would he reveal all of this now and openly? Well, again, it reminds us that he is in control. He, is plan- he, he has planned this all out, and they are simply playing along in the story. And so these claims that he makes, they guarantee his execution. And so, again, the Jews are misunderstanding his messianic purpose. He is not there to overthrow the Romans, but he is there to suffer and die as a ransom for sinners. And so let's move on to part two here of Jesus being denied by his follower, picking up in verse 66. So we're going to return back to Peter. And so while Jesus is faithfully confessing his identity as the Messiah and the Son of God before these powerful and potentially lethal members of the Sanhedrin, Peter cowardly denies Jesus before a simple servant girl. And so we see the two extremes of faithful discipleship here. So let's look at verse 66 then. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest, came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, You were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. So 
we learn for the first time that Jesus was in an upstairs room at the high priest's residence since Peter is below in the courtyard. And so, based on how Mark describes this young woman's actions, um, it, it doesn't seem that, that she's taking a break by the fire, but it's, it, she simply seems to be walking by. And we can tell from Mark's writing, too, that, that she is some type of, of slave. And so she first looked and then stared and then recognized Peter as one of, 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 of Jesus' disciples. And so um, where she had seen, we don't know exactly where she had seen him, or where, where uh, uh, she had seen him with Jesus, or she said that Peter was with Jesus, but the most likely place would have been she saw Peter with Jesus as he was teaching somewhere publicly. And so let's look at Peter's response in verse 68. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. Just then a rooster crowed. So Peter now knows that he is vulnerable to recognition, and so he moves closer to an exit in case he needs to make a quick escape. Verse 69, Then the servant girl saw him standing there. She began telling the others, This man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. And so um, Peter getting up and moving away from where he was originally located makes it look even more suspicious. And so... Uh, instead of uh, speaking to Peter himself, she's now getting the, the servant girl is now getting the attention of bystanders. So do you see Peter's predicament here? He's been found out, and he now sees, oh my gosh, this could get really bad really quick for me. And so with the, who are those people standing around? Well, probably some of the guards uh, who arrested Jesus himself. And so when she says this man was definitely one of them, she is clearly identifying Peter as a follower of Jesus. And so again, we see that Peter denies Jesus, but Mark doesn't record his exact words, what he says. So moving on to verse 70. A little time, a little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you are a Galilean. Peter swore, a curse on me if I am lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. So this third accusation comes after a short time, and it comes from the bystanders who've been alerted by this servant girl. And the implication seems to be that they all conferred among themselves and agreed that Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. And so they say that surely or truly he is one of them. Now, we don't exactly know how they know this, but it was probably due to his accent. Maybe they heard him speaking, and of course we know from living here in America, you know, where you live in the country, you might have, and you can probably tell from my strong accent, I was born and raised here in Houston, right? It comes through, right? But, but he had this accent that they could easily recognize as being from that part of the country. And so Peter responds to the third accusation by pronouncing curses and oaths. And so the translation that he began to, sw- to curse and swear, it misses the point because he wasn't using profanity. To swear really means to swear an oath, and to curse means to pronounce a curse. But then the question becomes, well, who is Peter cursing, right? And so um, some believe that, that he pronounces a curse on himself, and so um, others believe that he's calling down a curse on these people who are accusing them. Right? And so uh, he says here, I don't know the man. 
And so you ever like have one of your kids, or maybe you when you were a kid and your parent catches you or something, you catch your kid and you began the inquisition, right? You know, like you shine the light on them and stuff. So like, tell me, what were you up to? Nothing, really? Nothing? You look like something? No one, anything? Really? Are you sure? Why are you all over me? Why don't you just leave me alone? Right? And it's like, oh, why are you acting like this? Right? So we all, we all know what this is like. It's human nature. We get caught. We want to deny. And the more the, the, the secret is revealed, the more we begin to deflect and do things that are kind of just irrational. And we see that exact thing going on here with Peter. Moving in verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. So Jesus' prophecy is fulfilled when the rooster crows. And so Peter remembers those words and he breaks down crying. And so Peter, the rock, he has hit rock bottom. And his denial is particularly ominous when we look back at Jesus' words back in chapter 8, verse 38, when he's saying, at the Son of Man, okay, those who are ashamed of him, Jesus will be ashamed when he returns. And so in Mark's narrative, Peter will not be mentioned again until chapter 16, verse 7, at the angel's promise of reunion with Jesus at Galilee. And so what are we to, to take from this last bit of the passage today? Well, Mark's statement in 72 that Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him picks up the theme that has permeated the whole passion narrative and it's the divine necessity of the events. And so all this has been brought out by Jesus' own predictions as well as his identifications of these events as fulfillment of Scripture. We see also Jesus told the parable of these tenant farmers back in chapter 12. And it was a parable about what was to happen to him as well. And he predicted his betrayal, his desertion, and denial at the Last Supper. All these confirm both Jesus' own divine insight as the Son of God and the scriptural necessity that these events are closing in around him. You know, we talked last time about Jesus' full humanity being on display in the Garden of Eden. Or, I'm sorry, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in today's passage, we see Jesus' deity on full display. And so this tragedy unfolding in Mark's gospel, it's all part of God's plan of salvation. And so for Mark's original readers, this would have been great assurance that their suffering and their persecution that they were about to endure was not in vain. It is all part of God's greater purpose. It is all part of his plan. But we also see here, too, this demand for discipleship. And so Peter's denial reminds us, the readers, of the demands of what it means to follow Jesus. And so Jesus had this resolve in the face of suffering that clearly contrasts Peter's cowardly response under pressure. Jesus represents the model disciple who refuses to deny his calling despite persecution and even death. And so the examples of Jesus would have established uh, this imperative for Mark's readers as well, undergoing opposition from the Roman authorities and the general population. The easy way out for them would have been to deny Christ and to repudiate the church. 
there's this letter written a few decades after Mark's gospel around 112 AD from a man named Pliny the Younger. He was this governor of Bithynia. And he wrote to the emperor, emperor Trajan on advice on how to deal with the depraved superstition that was Christianity. He tells Trajan that those arrested and accused were asked three times if they were Christians. If they admitted it, they were executed. If they denied it, they were required to prove it by worshiping images of Caesar and cursing Christ. And he writes, this is a thing which, it is said, genuine Christians cannot be induced to do. Similarly, there is a story of the martyrdom of Polycarp. He was the bishop of a town called Smyrna. And so the leaders there called on him to swear an oath to the pagan um, uh, royalty and deny Christ, and that he would be set free. Okay, now he is 86. Now, according to church history here, Polycarp learned directly from the apostle John. So it was John and then Polycarp. And he's 86 years old, and he writes this, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. And how can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And then what happened then is Polycarp told them, Don't tie me up. I won't go anywhere. And they lit some wood around him on fire, and he stood there while he burned alive for Christ. And he would rather do that than deny who his Savior was. And the question then for Mark readers is that would they be willing to take up their own cross and follow Jesus even if it meant death? Or would they shrink back and deny them saving their life but losing their own souls? And this is a question for each one of us to wrestle with as well. In our faith, what are we willing to give up? What are we willing to endure to be faithful to Jesus Christ? And then finally, we also have this hope of, the, of restoration. Because the ending for Peter is a tragic one, at least at this point. But it's not without hope. You see, we, ha- we serve a God of another chance. Like you may have heard me say before, we don't serve a God of a second chance because you and I blew that a long time ago, right? We have a God of another chance. And Peter doesn't know it uh, at this point here, but he will have another chance. We see back um, in chapter 14, verse 28, after I am raised, I will go before you into Galilee. And we see this being affirmed in chapter 16, verse 7. And so we see this here in chapter 16, verse 7, where an angel at the empty tomb tells the women to report to his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. And so while, while Judas' betrayal was permanent, Peter's, Peter's denial is temporary. But the requirement for restoration is repentance and faith. And so we all experienced failure at various times in our Christian lives, whether by falling into sin or allowing our relationship with God to grow cold or keeping silent about our faith and struggling with doubt. But Peter's story reminds us that that God loves us despite our failings. And like the loving father in the parable of the prodigal son, he is always waiting with open arms to welcome us back into full fellowship with him. And so that closes out uh, chapter 14. Next time we're going to begin in chapter 15. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of your son 
Lord, what he endured that night is nothing compared to what he will endure, endure the following day. Lord, we thank you for his faithfulness in doing your will. Lord, forgive us for those times when we fall short. Forgive us when we do not completely stand up for you. Lord, let us not, let us not value what this world says. But Lord, let us seek to please you in our actions, in our words, and in our thoughts. May it be found of us that we are faithful to the end. Strengthen us for the days that are ahead. And Lord, let us boldly and and unashamedly proclaim the good news of your Son in this dark and dying world, because we know that one day we will see you again, and one day he will return, and every knee will bow, and every eye will see him, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Until then, may we be faithful. May we continually grow in our relationship with you. And may we freely be about the business of telling others about him. And we ask these things all in his name. Amen. As always, we appreciate your teaching, Pastor Daryl. Now, we don't want to walk away without having looked back. And there's so many things to process anytime you hear teaching or any kind of Bible study. What is that thing we need to keep on our mind, that key idea or takeaway of today's study? Well, Jesus for us represents the model disciple who refuses to deny his calling despite persecution and even death. And so it's important for us as Christians, as we look at the days ahead and we see how the world is becoming more and more hostile towards Christianity, how will we as followers of Jesus how will we react? How will we behave? Will we um, deny Jesus as Peter did, or will we remain faithful um, to the calling that he's placed in our lives? Now, I want to back up to something you just said um, that, that really just got me thinking. You said that Jesus is the model disciple. Mm-hmm. Let's unpack that, because I think most people think of Jesus as God. He is. Mm-hmm. As fully man, he is. Of all the things that he is, King, Savior, uh, Lord. But very rarely, I mean, we, we say that he came and lived a sinless life so that we could learn to be like him. But let's unpack that idea that most people don't really think it's possible to be a disciple like Jesus was a disciple. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. What are some, some things that get between us and truly surrendering to being a disciple like Jesus is? Well, let, let's face it, we look out for number one, which is us, right? And so we like things typically, this is just very general, we typically like things that don't cost us a lot, right? We will engage in activities where there's probably not a lot of demand. I won't have to sacrifice something. I won't have to really give up. Or if I do, it'll be a little bit so I can say at least I'm sacrificing something. But Jesus uh, reminds us over and over again the true cost of discipleship to lay our lives down, to pick up our cross daily and follow him. That's pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. Now, backing up to your key point, your key takeaway, let's reiterate that again because I got you on a bunny trail here. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Let's reiterate that again and then let's jump right into how do we apply that? Yeah. So, In this particular episode, we see um, Jesus' deity um, 
un- unfolding here. Again, uh, he is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's making that very clear. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, we saw his full humanity on display. Now we see his deity on display. And because of that, he is the model disciple. And he remains faithful to the Lord and says, not my will, but yours be done. Knowing what lies ahead of him, he still lays down his personal desires in his humanity to follow the Father. Wow, that's crazy. Now, how can we learn from that? What can we learn from that? Well, we can learn that, again, in America, typically, we have, I think, generally adopted this easy Christianity view. And um, for believers who've been persecuted around the world, um, I'm wondering what they would think if they came to America and we go, oh, I'm afraid to speak out on social media because someone might say something that hurts my feelings. And they're like, yeah, well, if I speak out, I could lose my life. But that's the thing is, is are we being faithful? Are we being true no matter what that costs? Now, here's the thing. We have all experienced failures in our Christian lives, whether by falling into sin or allowing our relationship with God to grow cold or keeping silent about our faith in times of doubt. But here's the great thing though. Peter's story reminds us that God loves us despite our failings. And like the loving father in the parable of the prodigal son, he's always waiting with open arms to welcome us back into fellowship with him. And so let me let me leave that as, as a strong encouragement for, for you all here. Maybe you feel beat up. Maybe you're at that place right now where you just went through some kind of trial and you realize that you failed miserably. There is always redemption with the Father as long as there is breath in your lungs. And I think that is something that's very different with Christianity versus any of the other world religions. It's, it's two things. One, there is redemption. Mm-hmm. And you can know that you know that you know that you've been redeemed. Mm-hmm. And two, um, that God's not looking for us to mess up. Like a lot of other world religions, it's kind of like the God is waiting around to punish us. Mm-hmm. God literally just wants us to follow his way, the way of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then as we come out of that, that will lead us to the life that he wants us to live for our own good, mm-hmm. not for his which is, it's so interesting that God wants to do these things for us because he knows that he created us this way mm-hmm. and we can be all that he created us to be. Mm-hmm. And ultimately that brings him glory. Yes. It's, it's so amazing. Yes, it is kind of weird how that all works out. And it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Now, as we're wrapping up, this is a, a pretty pivotal moment in the book of Mark. Mm-hmm. Do you want to outline maybe what's coming over the next couple of weeks? Mm-hmm. Um, because it really, like it, you, t- you talked about time slowing down. Time slows down, but the subject matter builds up here. Yes. So do you want to kind of maybe let, let people know what's, what's coming along and maybe keep them drawn to what we've done, with where we're going? Yeah, so in the last few episodes, we saw that Jesus uh, celebrated the Last Supper, the Passover meal with his disciples. And then they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus uh, was um, in prayer with the Father in deep agony, knowing what was coming. And yet he was betrayed by one of his closest followers. And so uh, we see now this sham of a trial, not really a trial. They're simply looking for 
information uh, to gather to present to the Romans about what Jesus has done. And so we see this trial before the religious leaders at night. Now, next time, or it's going to be the following morning. And so we're going to be looking at Jesus' trial before uh, the Roman governor and what happens there. And so, uh, again, all these things, you know, you think about it, there is the Last Supper, there is the arrest, there is the trial. All those things happen in one night. And next time, it's going to be actually the following morning. So we're going to talk about what happens when he stands before the Roman governor, what position he puts the Roman governor in. And then the next time after that, we are actually going to be looking at the crucifixion itself, what happens when Jesus is on the cross. Some heavy times. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I really appreciate the, the book of Mark and, and, and all that you've done here. We're going to be coming up on the Easter season soon for us because mm-hmm. we're, 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 we're in January, but February, March, and we're into April. Uh, I'm just wondering, how do we keep our eye on the cross a little bit? You, you know, as Christians, I think it's really easy coming out of Christmas. Oh, look, it's little baby Jesus in his little diaper, and it's so, so wonderful. But ultimately, that's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to celebrate that, but, but really our transformational moment as a saved people come with the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we, we forget how hard and gritty and costly the cross and the resurrection were. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why we take Christianity so lightly sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe this would be a great time for us to pray for those that are listening and those in our churches, that, that we would just keep our eyes and our mind focused on the things above. And I don't know, I just feel like we should pray for our folks. Yeah. Is, is, is that okay? Yeah, would you absolutely. like to lead us? Yeah. Father, we come before you thanking you for another day. And as we journey uh, through the gospel of Mark, as we look at, at the life of your son, Jesus, we know that it was all with uh, the crucifixion and resurrection in mind. All of these things were happening according to your plan and according to your purpose. And we know that our entire faith in you, Lord, rises and falls on the resurrection because if that is not true, as Paul said, we are the most to be pitied. And as we prepare uh, to celebrate um, Easter, as we look forward to what it means for your son to, to suffer and die as a ransom for many, I pray that we will use this time to examine our own hearts to look and see what our contribution was to all of this and to see that, that we bear some responsibility in all this. And ultimately, it is you, Father, who sent your son to die for us. It is him who willingly gave up his life. But Lord, it is all because of the choices that we have made. And so let us do some deep reflection into our lives. Let us examine our relationship with you. And Lord, that you would reveal to us uh, areas of our lives that, that need repentance. Uh, areas of our life that we need to give up and turn over to you. Areas of our life where we may, maybe we're holding on to some secret sin and that you would reveal those things to us so that we can repent of those things and seek your forgiveness, that we would relinquish full control and turn it all over to you and thereby be more faithful disciples, not choosing our will, but choosing yours. And through that, Lord, we know that we will find freedom that we have never experienced before because 
we know, Lord, that, that you are a God that gives freedom to his children because we know the truth who is Jesus and he has set us free from sin and its consequences. And so, Lord, um, uh, help us to remember, too, that through, um, through the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection, that we have hope beyond this life, that this world is not all that there is. And you, we know that there is something tremendous and unexplainable that awaits us in heaven, perfection that you had planned from the very beginning. And we will one day experience that, but until that time, that we will remain faithful. Forgive us for those times when we stumble and fall, because we all do. But I pray that we would continually seek to please you and to honor you and to be the faithful disciples that your son modeled for us. And we are his followers, so we should pursue the lifestyle that he also chose to please you above all things. And Lord, we ask all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, Pastor Daryl. Thank you for the teaching and the wise counsel today. As always, remember to like and share the podcast on your platform and there are show notes. We don't talk about this enough, but there are show notes available to you um, right there in um, each one of your platforms. It outlines what we're talking about and any extra information that you might need. It's a great resource and if you're not using it, um, it might help you to go a little bit deeper um, each week with Grasp the Bible. Now join us next week as we continue our study in the book of Mark. Mark.